The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Amazon Prime Day is October 10th and 11th. It's on my calendar. I am actually doing a live stream on my Amazon storefront. It's the Skinny Confidential storefront. So I will be on there at 6 p.m. Central Time if you want to come hang out. And I'm discussing my Prime Day picks. And you should know that the Skinny Confidential is on Amazon now. And all of the products are on Prime Day. So if you listen to this podcast, you can head over to Amazon and search the Skinny Confidential. And on October 10th and 11th, grab a bunch of the products. I personally would start with the pink balls. They are absolutely amazing. I have been chiseling and sculpting my face every single morning. Sometimes I put them in the refrigerator and sometimes I put them under hot water. You cannot go wrong with these balls. They're absolutely insane. It's like the best sculpting tool on the market and it's on Prime. So go shop it. Amazon Prime Day, October 10th and 11th and go search The Skinny Confidential on Amazon and get all the things. She's a lifestyle blogger extraordinaire. Fantastic. And he's a serial entrepreneur. A very smart cookie. And now Lauren Everts and Michael Bostick are bringing you along for the ride. Get ready for some major realness. Welcome to The Skinny Confidential, him and her. Aha. My grandfather left me with this one metaphor that I will carry with my heart for the rest of my life. He believed that the world was like a massive sitar. Sitar is like the string, the Indian string instrument. And he said that every one of us represents a string in that sitar. No one string is more important than the other string. We're all one string. Your job in life is really to figure out how to play your string. The beauty of that isn't that just that when you play your string, it plays, it plays wonderfully. It's that when you can play your string, you start to harmonize the other strings as well. It's not just about us. When you can start to come into your own, when you can start to express who you are through what you do, it affects the people around you as well. That would be the one thing is tune into your string, learn how to play it well. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome to the Skinny Confidential, him and her show. Today, we have an incredible episode with our guest, Sunil Gupta, the author of Everyday Dharma, Eight Essential Practices for Finding Success and Joy in Everything You Do. In his book, Sunil offers a path to personal fulfillment without sacrificing professional ambition. This is an incredible episode for anyone looking for fulfillment, trying to find happiness, trying to be happy where you are, making sure that your ambition doesn't overshadow living a fulfilled life. And we cover a bunch of different topics. Some of them include why success is a lousy teacher, what the arrival fallacy is, what your dharma is and how to find it, how to find your authentic self and know what you want in life, inner success versus outer success, and how to really find your passion. This one is jam-packed for anyone out there who's just looking to level up, feel good, better themselves, and all around be a great person. Lauren and I really enjoyed having Sunil on the show. We're probably going to do it again. We liked it so much. With that, Sunil Gupta, welcome to the Skinny Confidential, him and her show. This is the Skinny Confidential, him and her. Great guests, great content. I hate the voices. Now I'm <laughs> losing my voice and my voice has changed and hopefully the And they're going to be like, wow, are... we love the voice. Exactly. <laughs> well, listen, man. First, I got to give out a shout out to my friend, Jeff Berman. He, it, Jeff and I have worked together here in this, at Dear Media for years now. Um, and it is rare that he says, hey, you have to interview this person. You're mm -hmm. one of those people. I'm very mm -hmm. glad he set us up. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Jeff. 
Thank you, Jeff. There's a, there's a lot of directions we can take this with you and I, we're going to get into it and go all over the place. But to start, I want to like maybe a little bit of background because you're a tech entrepreneur, you've done a lot of different things. Now you're an author writing a mm. book. And I think just some context around how you even got here in the first place would be helpful. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, what I do for a living is I travel around the world and I, and I study, you know, what I consider to be, you know, the most exceptional performers in their different industries, but I try to find them really at their lowest moments at the times when things were not going well, when they had a goal that didn't come together. The reason that's fascinating to me is because I feel like it's in those it's in those moments of despair that we learn the most. You know, we, we've heard the, the saying, success is a pretty lousy teacher, right? And failure teaches us so many things about ourselves. And that's where I spend my time. But, you know, for me, it's also been a personal journey. I, you know, I spent a lot of time in New Delhi growing up. My parents are both, you know, my dad came from India. My mom came from what is now Pakistan. She's a refugee. We would go back to India to my dad's childhood home. And my grandfather would teach me a lot about this concept called Dharma. And, you know, it was the way that my ancestors lived. And Dharma is your essence. And when you are expressing your essence, you come alive in a brand new way. And, when you're not, you can feel lost and you can feel depleted and depressed. And I think so many of us are feeling that way right now. And I'm like trying to absorb all this as like, you know, as a seven-year-old, <laughs> you know, we go back to the United States. I grew up in Metro Detroit and I did everything that I possibly could to distance myself from being Indian. I grew up in a pred- predominantly white neighborhood and I wanted to be as white as possible. I would overwear Bruce Springsteen t-shirts. I would cake, at times, baby powder onto my face to make myself look more white because, you know, I didn't describe it at the time this way, but I was ashamed of who I was. And so this whole body of philosophy, this way that my my ancestors, even my parents sort of behaved and followed, I wanted nothing to do with it. And instead, I adopted sort of this Western way of grit and hustle and, and all the things I think you and I both know and went out into the world and, and you know, hustled my, hustled my ass off. And either I found myself failing, you know, I started two companies that both failed. I ran for public office and I lost. But even when I was succeeding, even when like things were coming together, I wasn't finding the, the happiness that I actually thought I was going to find. I, I wasn't finding the sense of joy from that. And as a result, I, I, was, I, was, I was lost. I was depressed. I felt this emptiness. You know, there's this, this Sufi saying that, you know, the world breaks your heart. It breaks your heart. It breaks your heart. And then eventually your heart cracks open. And it's from that openness that you start to find love. You, you understand how to live. And I think for me, what happened when my heart sort of broke open is it developed a sense of curiosity about this body of work called Dharma, you know, this thing that has existed for thousands of years that has helped people find who they are and express that to the world. And I wanted to return back to that thing. And that's what really brought me to to this book. What was the like real epiphany, though, from you to go from putting baby powder on your face? to completely embracing your culture? Like, was there like a moment where you were having success where you thought, I'm doing this the wrong way? Yeah, I mean, I think I was caught in what Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar, if you follow his work, calls the arrival fallacy, right? I was chasing this moment of arrival. 
And what the arrival fallacy basically is, is this notion of like, hey, we are, we are in this belief pattern that one day we're going to reach a certain amount of wealth, a certain amount of status, a certain amount of success. And once we actually get there, then we're going to finally feel whole inside. And the problem I think that a lot of people feel is that even when you do start to accumulate some of this stuff, the goalpost moves. And then it moves again and it moves again and it can feel like this sort of endless chase. You know, for me, I wouldn't say that I was, I was, I was definitely failing more than I was succeeding, but I was aware enough to know that even when I was getting those wins, I wasn't feeling any happier really as a result of that. It was just what's next and what's next after that. And I, when I looked around, what I realized is that so many people seem to be caught in this arrival fallacy. And I wanted to know, like, how do we get ourselves out of it? That's when I started to really kind of look back and embrace some of these ways of living that, you know, aren't new. They're thousands of years old, but I think they're more relatable today than I think really any, any time before. I have this friend that every single time I go out to dinner with him, he's like, I'm going to be happy when I'm going to be less stressed when this happens. I'm going to be relaxed when I get this. And like everything he was saying was like when he gets something, he's going to feel a certain emotion. Mm. I think that's a lot of people. Mm. And no, it speaks Mm. to what you're saying. It sounds like a lot of people are like that. When you tell me all this, what I found that's worked for me, and I would love to know what's worked for you, is I just try to find happiness in little moments that are really simple. So like taking my son for a walk and it's like warm out and doing a meditation that to me makes me like really feel happy. That's what's really worked for me. The more successful I've gotten is to find the little boring moments and make them feel special. Yeah. 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 You know, it's like Jim, Jim Carrey has a lot of funny things, but he he has that one and I'm going to butcher this, but he has that like saying where he's like, his dream is that he hopes that everybody finds all the riches and success and fame that they, that they're looking for to see that it's like basically not the answer. And I think a lot of people listen to like easy for you to say, if you, you know, you've had resources, you've become successful, maybe you're struggling to pay your bills, but some of the most miserable people I've encountered in my life are some of the most accomplished. And it's, it's a weird fallacy when you see that you're like this on paper, this person has, quote unquote, everything. Why can't they be happy? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, even if we haven't gotten to this point of sort of success, I think it, it still is about the next client, the next deal, the next thing. Even that climb, we're all, I think, sort of at least in the background aware of, hey, like it, it is a bit of a sort of a unquenchable thirst. I think what you're saying is, is so interesting. You know, I think it is the little things. When we were coming up with the title of this book, even, you know, one of the options was to call it Dharma. But the thing about, you know, even a concept like Dharma or purpose is sometimes it seems so all-encompassing. Like it seems like, you know, you almost have to quit your job and move to Paris and become a painter or go backpacking through yeah, the Himalayas. to find It's overwhelming. Yeah. And, and, you know, for most people, for, you know, most of us, we're, 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 we're paying the bills. We're dealing with kids. We're dealing with aging parents. We have back-to-back meetings and commitments. I mean, that that isn't really an option, you know? And so the question, I think, isn't about how to find dharma through escape, but it's through alignment. Yeah. And and it's those little things that I think sort of take us further and further into who we are. Dharma isn't what you do. It's it's who you are and who you, how who you are gets expressed through what you do. And even if you can make these one-inch little gains, these 1% little gains— where you feel like you're expressing just a little bit more of who you are through what you do, 
it starts to open you up in a brand new way. You're so right, though. People get so overwhelmed. They're like, I need to move to Paris. I need to change my whole life. I need to I need to go live in a foreign country for three months. And it's like, if you can't find happiness in the little pockets throughout your day, what makes you think that you're going to move for three months somewhere else and find it there? Totally. It's it's so confusing if you really think about it. It's, it's almost not thinking A to Z, but just A to B every day. So that makes total sense to me. When you were interviewing all of these incredibly successful, high-performing people. And you said that you wanted to talk with them when they felt low. Mm. What were they feeling low about exactly? What was the common denominator between all of them? Yeah, it's usually it was usually about a missed goal. It was usually that they wanted to start something that they, you know, start a company or start an organization or take a shift in their career or try to find a promotion in a role they already had. And they didn't get it you know, and they missed. And, you know, typically it was people who, you know, when I, when I talk to people who are like, you know, Oscar winning filmmakers, for example, that, you know, had a couple of hits, but then they had the big miss, right? These are these moments where, you know, it's interesting because I used to ask people the generic question of like, what was the best year of your career? And I stopped asking that because I felt like usually what it led to was like, oh, well, we, we hit the chart on this or we, you know, that was a really sweet victory. We had this. Instead, I asked people, what was the most meaningful year of your career? And usually when I ask that question, the vast majority of the time people answer with a, with a loss. It was something that went wrong. It was something that they tried to do and they missed. And because of that, they ended up learning so much about what they really wanted, right? And oftentimes that led to a shift in their career. It led to a shift in their path. In, you know, in the book, I call this the magic of a missed goal. You know, we, we, we set these goals and we sort of feel like if we don't hit them, you know, we're done, right? It's, it's, it's all failure. But I think the reality is that it's through these moments of missed goals that can ultimately lead us to even even better things. I don't know. Is that something that you can relate to? No, 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 for sure. And I think I was talking to a friend of mine the other day and he was saying, hey, like the last 10 years in this market, I look like a genius as an operator because everything's been going well. And all of a sudden now it's like, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a shit show and people don't know. And, and, I, and he was saying it's been like a huge defining moment for him because all of these things he wanted to do have been derailed just by the conditions of what's going on in the world. And he and it's helped him refocus. And I think yeah. for me, I've had such a weird and eclectic career of doing different things at a young age. But the only time I've ever learned anything or figured out like, hey, that's my purpose, that's my passion, is when something has gone wrong. It's never yeah. like things are going like things when things are going right. You you actually you almost don't think about it as much. You're like, oh, this is just you're like kind of on autopilot. Yeah, it's those moments when you get buckled to your knees. Where you're like, okay, I gotta like figure out really who I am and what I actually want. Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes a promotion or an advancement can feel like a departure. You know, we talk to people who got to that partner level within a firm and now they're like actually miserable because they're like, oh, I am actually further away of, from what I actually want to do, right? Even though on paper, it seems like I'm humming along. Or I'm like, I'll just talk like financially, every time I've hit another milestone, I remember being a kid and like wanting to hit these milestones. Like you have these numbers in your mind. Like when I get there, I'm going to be able to do these. And every time I, like I, now that I reflect, I'm like, it's it's to your point it's always moving the goalposts further and i and i like self-analyze i'm like why do i like these the like this goal that i told myself years ago i'd be content with yeah. i'm not content with 
why is that? So you want to keep the drive and you want to keep the ambition, but at the same time, you have to find happiness without that material stuff, yeah. right? And if you don't do that, I think you're just going to be on this constant hamster wheel of looking for more and more and more. But you also have to enjoy the process too. Yes. Because yeah. everyone's so obsessed with the getting there. You have to enjoy the process yeah. and the patience of the process. I think that people miss that too. If someone's listening and they're feeling burnt out, they're feeling low energy, they're feeling just not fulfilled. Where do you start with that person? What are some some quick tips that they can apply tomorrow? Yeah. You know, one of the things that I sort of thought about when I first started talking about dharma and started learning about dharma was that it was something that I had to go find on the outside. And, and right? how do you define dharma exactly? Yeah. So dharma is your, it's your inner calling, but I like to think of it as your essence, right? It's this, this, it's this thing about you that sort of wants to express itself. And when you're expressing it, you feel alive. Like you feel confident, you feel creative, you feel caring. And when you don't, you, you feel lost, you feel depleted. And, you know, we use words like purpose as sort of these flowery terms, right? But the reality is purpose can hurt like hell, right? If you're not expressing this thing, it feels agonizing. You know, the, the way I think about Dharma is that either it's going to light up the world around you or it's going to burn a hole inside of you. You get to choose which one, but no one really escapes that choice. So the the act is is starting to come back to what is my essence, and then how do I express that to the world? And, and you know, the good news is that your dharma isn't something you have to go find; it's something that's already inside of you. But it's been buried. You know, for a lot of us, it's been buried, and it's been buried under other people's expectations, other people's judgments. It's been buried under the priorities and realities of life, and so. You know, Michelangelo would look at a block of marble and he would say, the sculpture is already inside. All I have to do is chisel away the layers that are, that are hiding it. And Dharma is very much the same way. We can start to chisel away the layers. And even these little things, even these little chisels can make a huge difference. So let me give you an example. Uh, there was a project manager named Mila that I talk about in the book. And Mila was, you know, she was inside a big company. She was earning a, a good salary. But she was miserable, like she didn't like her job. And she really wanted to become a teacher. But the problem was that her family relied on her healthcare insurance. They relied on her salary. She didn't have the liberty necessary to, to like quit her job and go back to get her teaching certificate. So she, like a lot of us, I think she felt trapped in her job. And then one day a mentor sits down with her and says, I just got this very simple question for you. What is it specifically about teaching that you love? And as Mila goes deeper into that question and goes beneath the title of teacher and into what she really loves about teaching, what she, really, what she decides is like she really loves helping people grow. Like that's her thing. She loves to help people grow. And yet teaching was one way to express that, but there were many other ways to express that as well. And so she ends up making a relatively small shift into the training department inside her own company. And when that happens, everything changes. Like she goes from dreading her job to waking up with energy and enthusiasm. You know, her, she becomes a rising star within the company. Her husband sees her light up in a brand new way. Their kids see their mother come alive. The myth, I think, is that we have to abandon our life in order to you know, transform the way that we live. And I think oftentimes our dharma is right within the reach of where we are right now. So the simple thing 
one of the one of the most simple things you can do if you are in a place right now that you don't like start to think about what that dream job or that dream role really is but don't just stop there look underneath the hood of the dream itself you go beneath the title go beneath the salary and ask yourself specifically what is the essence of that job what is it about that thing that actually makes me tick because when you can go there, what you can start to realize is, in, in Neela's case, for example, was helping people grow, that you might be able to take the essence of that thing and pull it into your life in some shape or form, right? Even right now, I right think where you, you can are. apply that to a marriage, though, too. It's <laughs> yeah. like it's yeah. people think the grass is always greener on the other side. My mother-in-law tells me this all the time. She's like, the grass is not greener on the other side. What's that saying? It's where you water it. If you are mm-hmm. having troubles in your marriage, maybe change your approach within the marriage and find things that you used to connect on. I just think like people are so quick to like burn this down to go to the next thing. But it's so to to your point, it's like she was working at this place and she found something else within the place. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to butcher something, but is is that what you call the suka? Yeah. Yeah, That's why you start there is figuring out who you are, what you actually like, what you want. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So suka is your authentic self, you know, and so, you know, the, the practices inside the first couple of chapters are really about sort of these chisels, these things that we can use. And, and sometimes they're as simple as questions that we can ask ourselves. You know, one of the most basic questions, and it's, it's, it may sound cliche, but, it, but I think it does help, is what would I do for free? Right? What would I do if I wasn't compensated for it? And, that's and, a good one. And that's not to say necessarily that you have to work for free. But if you can clearly answer that question. It's so funny you say that because Lauren and I started the show for free out of our living room and we did it for two years for free. And I would still do this every day for free because I think like our thing is we like to meet people like yourself. We're curious, like to talk to them. And and luckily and fortunately, we've been able to build a business around it. But even without the business, I would still want to do this thing. I would still want to be sitting here with you talking about all this stuff. I love that. And, And it shines through. I mean, because I think when you're doing that thing, the level of creativity, the level of energy you bring to it, I mean, just for, far surpasses. I mean, the irony of all of it is that, you know, there's outer success and there's inner success, right? And outer success is wealth, it's achievement, it's, it's all that. Inner success is this, this joy that you're getting from the process, right? And, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with outer success. I think, you know, there's, there's, a, lot, there's a lot of sort of shame out there of I shouldn't want the nice things. I don't think that that's true. And, and if you like nice things, there's nothing wrong with that. I think the myth, though, is that outer success is somehow going to lead you to inner success. And that almost never happens. What you can do is reverse the flow, just like you did, which is you start with something that really, really matters to you. And if you start with something that really matters to you, you bring a higher level of energy to it. You bring more creativity to it. You bring more enthusiasm to it. And that, in a lot of cases, will lead to outer success as well. Yeah, I think like, the way I look at it is like outer success should just be a byproduct of doing the things that you love and you're passionate about. But, you know, one question we get all the time on the show, especially from younger people, is how do you find your passion? And mm-hmm. I think a lot of them, they haven't done this work to discover their essence. I mean, it's it's a hard question to answer. Saying like, hey, you know, w- whenever someone who's found their passion early says, oh, just chase your passion. Yeah. I think that's easy for some of those people to say. But if you're one of these people that's confused about it and hasn't discovered that and doesn't know how to do that, yeah. I think it's difficult. And I don't know, maybe you have some insight on how people could, could figure that out. I, I think that we are in, you know, I was, and I think a lot of people are stuck in an occupation mindset where we feel like our passion is a specific job title. 
So my passion is to be a lawyer. My passion is to be a doctor. My passion is to be a podcaster. What we, what we need to do, I think, is go a little bit deeper than that to, okay, what underlies all of that? Do you love to tell stories? Do you love to nurture people? Do you love to help people grow in the case of Mila, right? Because when you can go to that essence level, what you start to realize is that there are many different ways to express that essence, right? And all of a sudden, this feeling of like being fixed and trapped and stuck starts to dissipate because what you realize is, gosh, there are so many different ways for me to show up in the world. You know, like for me, I was, I was in a technology role, right, inside Silicon Valley, and I fucking hated it. You know, I, I, but I wanted to pretend like I liked it because it seemed like well, that's what the cool people were doing. The people who were making money were doing that, and I was chasing what they had without realizing that that wasn't actually who I was. When I started to realize that, I started to say, all right, what is it that I really enjoy doing? And what I came back to was I love to tell stories. That, that, that was my essence. But now all of a sudden I find myself in this technology company, mm-hmm. right? And I, I know that I'm a storyteller in my essence. What do I do? Those are two different worlds. But the way that I started to align who I am with what I do was by really digging into customer stories. I started to spend more of my days listening to customer stories. I started to spend more of my day telling and share, sharing those stories with the people around me. Interesting. Right? And just, just do that. Just do that act. It would seem small, but just do that act. I was waking up with more enthusiasm for my day. I love my work more. And it put me on a path where, hey, like maybe I can start to double down and triple down over time being a storyteller. The reason I'm an author today is because I discovered myself as a storyteller inside a company, you know, and, 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 but I think one path can lead to another. Yeah. And to your point, if you just, if you define in this case that you're a storyteller, there's so many avenues that you can work within podcast, author, podcast, author, speaker. There's so many, so many different ways. Yeah. As opposed to just defining, like, say you're like, I'm going to tell stories on a podcast and then you start doing a podcast. Like I hate doing this. Maybe you're better at speaking or or being an author or doing video, whatever it may be. You have an essence, but the way that you express that essence can change over time, right? And when we start to come around to that, I think all of a sudden it liberates us. I mean, I think, you know, one of the the things I love about Dharma, like, is that Dharma was never meant to be a transformation. You're not trying to fix yourself. You're not trying to necessarily change yourself. You're trying to liberate yourself. There's a part of you that wants to come alive. It wants to come out. And you, there are so many different possibilities of how that can be done. And that's ultimately what the book is about. The holidays are upon us. It's time to start thinking about getting gifts. But before you do, let's try and save you some money with the Ibotta app. What is Ibotta for those of you that don't know? Ibotta gives you cash back on hundreds of grocery items from produce to personal care to pantry goods. So you can make sure you're beating inflation no matter what you're purchasing. Either link your loyalty account or upload your receipt after you shop and get cash back instantly. It's that easy. You just download the app on your phone. The average Ibotta user earns $100 per year. That could cover the cost of an entire shopping trip or you could use your cash back to buy that flight you've been eyeing, that game you're dying to go to, that fancy dinner, really anything. Other apps in this space maybe give you points that really don't amount to much. With iBody, you get real cash back that you can cash out to your bank account, PayPal, or gift cards. You can also earn cash back on hundreds of online brands and retailers too when you start with iBody, including Lowe's, Macy's, Sephora, Best Buy, and more. So again, if you're getting ready to do that holiday shopping this year and you want to save a little extra money with really no risk, iBody is the app for you. 
All you have to do is download the Ibotta app now and use code SKINNY to start earning real cash back. Just go to the App Store or Google Play Store and download the free Ibotta app and use code SKINNY. That's I-B-O-T-T-A in the Google Play or App Store and use code SKINNY. All you have to do is download the Ibotta app now and use code SKINNY to start earning real cash back. Just go to the App Store or Google Play Store and download the free Ibotta app and use code SKINNY. That's I-B-O-T-T-A in the Google Play or App Store and use code SKINNY. Again, go download Ibotta app and use code SKINNY. Quick break to talk about the farmer's dog. If you're listening to this show, I can almost guarantee you that you are somebody that cares about what you put in your body, what you eat, and how you take care of yourself. Why not do the same for your furry friends, namely your dog? Lauren and I have done this for our pets, and it has been an absolute game changer. The Farmer's Dog makes and delivers fresh, healthy dog food. It's developed by vets, nutritionally balanced, and made from real healthy ingredients to human food safety standards. It's the best option for dogs at all stages of life. Lauren and I noticed a huge difference in our dog's happiness and their well-being as soon as we switched them to real food. Again, we go through life thinking about all the ways we can optimize ourselves and take care of ourselves. And then we use this kibble for our pets that's just not great. This is why we love the farmer's dog so much. The farmer's dog isn't just fresh, higher quality food. They also send the food pre-portioned specifically for your dog based on their unique nutritional needs. This makes it easy to help your dog maintain their ideal weight, which is one of the biggest indicators of a full, healthy life. Dogs at a healthy weight can live up to 2.5 years longer. Who doesn't want their dog to live longer? Just this simple change in getting them better food for them is going to make a huge difference in their lives and health and well-being. It doesn't matter if your dog is young or old. It's always the right time to begin investing in their health, helping you live more healthy, happy, and full years together. That means more magical moments with your dog, but no actual magic required. And of course, we have an offer for you. Get 50% off your first box of fresh, healthy food at thefarmersdog.com slash skinny. Plus, you get free shipping. Just go to thefarmersdog.com slash skinny. Go to thefarmersdog.com slash skinny to get 50% off your first box plus free shipping. One of the biggest but also most basic things we've learned doing this show, talking to so many health and wellness experts, beauty experts, all the different kinds of experts, is the importance of proper hydration. You may think you're properly hydrating by just drinking a little bit of water each day, but more than likely you're not, and that's probably because you don't have the proper electrolyte ratio. We've talked about the importance of magnesium in minerals. This is why we love Element so much. Element, for those that don't know, is a tasty electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means lots of salt with no sugar. It contains a science-backed electrolyte ratio of 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. It's got none of the junk, no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no filler, no BS. Lauren and I take this pretty much every single time we work out, when we're traveling, anytime we're going to be dehydrated or know that we're going to be in a situation where we're sweating and losing our electrolytes. This is not just for high performance though. Element is formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs and is perfectly suited for anyone following a keto, low carb, or even paleo diet. You may be wondering why you need electrolytes. Well, electrolytes facilitate hundreds of functions in the body, including the conduction of nerve impulses, hormonal regulation, nutrient absorption, and fluid balance. Element can also help prevent and eliminate headaches, which I suffer from, muscle cramps, fatigue, sleeplessness, and other common symptoms of electrolyte deficiency. If you're one of those people that in the middle of the day feeling a little sluggish, you may be deficient in electrolytes. What I love about Element is it comes in single-serve packets. You can keep it in your office desk, 
really anywhere and just add it to a glass of water. And of course, we have an offer right now. Element is offering our listeners a free sample pack with any purchase. That's eight single serving packets free with any Element order. This is a great way to try all eight flavors or share Element with a salty friend. Get yours at drinkelement.com slash skinny. This deal is only available through our link. You must go to drinklmnt.com slash skinny. Element offers no questions asked refunds. Try it totally risk-free. If you don't like it, share it with a salty friend and they will give you your money back. No questions asked. You have nothing to lose. Drinkelement.com slash skinny. What are the eight essential practices? Can we go through yeah. each one? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. I have them all here. So we just covered the suka. Is that yeah. how you describe it? And I'm going to, is it bhakti? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So full-hearted devotion. Yeah, so bhakti. Bhakti is full-hearted devotion. And it's all about how do we start to bring ourselves out of this time mindset that we're in right now where we feel like when we have a passion or a purpose, we have to spend every hour of every day with it and instead put ourselves into a full-hearted mindset where we might not have a chance to spend every minute of every day with our passion or purpose. We might have a chance to spend only a few minutes with our passion or purpose every day, but we want that to be full-hearted. And, you know, the punchline is that it is way, way better to be full-hearted and partly scheduled than it is to be, you know, half-hearted and fully scheduled, right? And we, and we know that because we've seen it in our own work. You know, my wife and I, we, we have two kids. We have an 11-year-old and a 6-year-old. And we joke about how, like, at 6.45 every morning, the house goes absolutely berserk, right? <laughs> and our time, and you guys, you guys, three-and-a-half-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old. Yeah, we're you, in it. You're in it, Right. So our time is done beyond a certain point. And even at the end of the day, after the kids are asleep, like that's just not, that's not good connected time. Like we're both exhausted from our days. So what that practically means for our relationship is that we have this window in the morning from like 6.30 to 6.45, where it's just the two of us and the house is quiet. And what we do is we put away our phones during that time and we just have a cup of coffee with each other, right? Like one connected, good cup of coffee, or I get to look at her, she gets to look at me, and we get to just hang out, right? And that 15 minutes is the bedrock of our relationship, right? It's full-hearted. And you know, every once in a while, we get date night. And maybe every, every year or two, we get to sneak away for a few days at a time, right? But that 15 minutes is ultimately where it's at, right? And the same thing is true, I think, for Dharma, is that you don't need to be spending all of your time. Like, if you're in a job right now because you have to pay the bills, you're in a, you're, you're, that's fine. But there are little pockets, there are little moments in your day where you can start to express that Dharma. The question is, how do we do that in a full-hearted way? And that's really what this chapter is about. Next one, prana. Yeah. Energy over time. And we've talked, some, um, someone covered this on the show before, but I would love for you to, to dive into it a little bit more. Yeah. So prana is really about sort of the energy, the extraordinary energy that we can bring to our sort of our work. And, you know, it, oftentimes it is exhaustion that brings us out of our dharma. One of the fallacies, I think, is that you can find purpose. And once you find your purpose, you're like lit up with energy and you just have abundant amounts of it, right? And that's not always true, you know? Like part of my role is, is on faculty at Harvard Medical School and I, and I talk to, you know, I talk to and I teach people who are, I think, clearly living their purpose. Like they love what they do at their heart, but they're also burnt out. You know, they're, they're, 
a lot of them are, are nurses and physicians and they're and they're 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 really kind of exhausted and if you're exhausted you it's really hard to sort of feel like you're living like a purposeful intentional life so what that means practically speaking is that in order to stay in our dharma right in order to live a life of dharma we have to also take care of this level of energy we have one of the things we realize about high performers is that they're not waiting for vacations they're not waiting for long breaks in order to take moments of rest. In fact, the average high performer is taking somewhere around eight breaks every single day. This is so funny. But this girl went into my facialist and says, does Lauren really do all these wellness practices that she posts on Instagram? And the girl was like, yeah, she, she my facialist was like, yeah, she does. She does them all. The girl said, Lauren must be exhausted from doing all these wellness <laughs> practices. And my facialist says, no, the wellness practices actually give her the energy to be yeah. efficient when it's time to go for my career. And it's so true. It's like you have to do the self-care and the wellness to be effective. And if that means stopping in the middle of the day or taking a walk while you're on a conference call or saying you need a break, I'm all about that. Totally. Totally. Like, let's do it. I, I think I think this is the reason, this is what you're describing, I think is the issue that I have with, with the term work-life balance. Because I think what, what it's basically saying is like, you have your time for work and you have to have your time for life or, or joy or wellness, right? And those two things are separate, right? We're balancing them off of each other. But ultimately, I think what you're saying is they fuel one another. I can't right? be effective as a performer within my company if I don't have the space and the time to think. But I do want to say I have not always been perfect at this and I'm not perfect now. The, it's it's the balance thing has been really tough. And I'm sure you know this with your studies, like it's a really tough thing to find. But once you find it and you sort it sort of checks into place, it's really hard to get off of it. No, yeah. but I agree with what you're saying. It's I don't think I, I don't think it's like one or the I think they have to be integrated. Yeah. You know, like Lauren and I, when we got to we obviously worked together. And she was saying, Okay, well, when we get home, like we gotta be able to like turn this off or like turn this on. I'm like, over time that's not gonna work. Like so much of our life is doing this and then being together. We're gonna talk about these things. I can't like we can't just like shut I just don't want to be having sex with you and you're asking <laughs> you don't me want about, to put the about spreadsheet a, yeah, a spreadsheet. No, like, but, I, but that's I mean, true integration. I think a lot of the, I think a I lot know, of people it's true integration. <laughs> I, I agree with you. I don't believe in this term work life balance. I I think you have to figure out how to integrate your life with your work and have them be complementary. It is yeah, hard yeah. to find though. I mean, there was for ten years I was completely unbalanced, I felt. So I mean it, it's not like something that's natural. You have to actively look for uh, it. I'm in with your work. You. Have you ever found somebody that's balanced? Well, you, so I think people who find that balance, they're not waiting. They're not waiting for, okay, let's think about it. Let's think about it as a traffic light, red, yellow, green, right? I think what most of us do, and I certainly did this, is I would wait until I got to turn red, right? I was in the red in order to find recovery. I'd be like, hey, I, I need to take a pause. I need to take a break, right? And then I would sort of downshift in my work, Right. And oftentimes at that time, my work would suffer. So I was burning really hard for a while. And then like I would just downshift or, you know, worst case scenario, I was just completely burnt out. And I'm like, I need to go find another job, right? Because it's just not working anymore. And I think a lot of people do that, right? Like I think it's like over over 60% of the workforce right now is looking for their next thing. And what the data tells us is that within three to six months of being in a new job, we're already starting to think about our next one. 
So it's this constant cycle, I think, and I think burnout has a lot to do with it. We, we burn hard for a while, like, and all of a sudden we start to deplete ourselves. In the book, I talk about this practice that worked for me, and I've now seen it work for others, called the 55-5 model, right? 55-5, which is that whenever possible, and it's not always, like, but whenever it is, for every 55 minutes of work, you're taking five minutes of focused, deliberate rest. And that five minutes, you could be doing anything. You could be sipping on a cup of coffee. You could be chatting with each other. You could be taking a walk. So long as it's deliberately non-productive, like you're not trying to squeeze a little bit of productivity into that five minutes. And I think that if you're listening right now, what you might be thinking, because I thought this was that that's shrinking your amount of output, right? Because if you're shrinking each hour by five minutes, multiply that times a nine-hour day or whatever, that's 45 minutes lost, right? So you might be thinking, hey, I'm already scrambling for time right now, and you're telling me to shrink my output by 45 minutes. Like, isn't that going to reduce, isn't that going to put me further behind? But what the data and the science almost like always shows is that every one of those five minutes is making the other 55 minutes far more productive, far more energetic, far more creative. And that rubs off on the people around you as well, right? And I think the mind, the mindset shift is that we, I think, have been conditioned to, to treat rest as a reward. Like you're, you're, you're rewarding yourself for something that you've just done. And I think what you're saying, Lauren, in a lot of ways is it's not a reward for what you've just done. It's almost a preparation for what you're about to do. I really try to approach now. This is now. I have not always been good at this. My business, like an athlete, like it's like I have to prepare to be the sharpest, clearest person when I show up. And I've gotten to a place, and I don't know if it's after having kids, where I do not feel guilty saying no. I do not feel guilty taking space for myself. I do not feel guilty meditating, taking rest, doing a sauna, a cold plunge, whatever it is. I'm like, this is what I'm doing and I need these tools. Yeah. And and I also not not just need, I want to do them yeah. so I can feel my best. I think there's like also two camps with this when it comes to becoming a parent. In my case, I always figured when you have children, your productivity is going to slow down because you're going to be busy with the children. But I think in my case, it's gone up and it's because what's yeah. happened is having the children anything that takes me away from them, I have to be so focused now and utilizing as much of that time. Yeah. Right. And then in getting the most out of it that I may be in some ways, quote unquote, working less than I used to before I had all these obligations, but the productivity is more because I'm more focused. Sure. And I'm bringing a lot more energy to it. Yeah. Where before you're like, you're kind of like, oh, okay, like I don't really have anybody relying on me. I can just <laughs> like float around yeah. instead of a task that, you know, really could only take me an hour. Maybe I can spend like two hours or an hour and a half because there was no, there was no crunch. And I, and I feel like the, it, it kind of fits in with what you're saying here, which is there are these periods of time where I'm taking a lot more time away. But then when I'm there, I'm like, it's all energy and all focus. Yeah. Yeah. I think too, when like it, it has to be worth it to be away from the children. So you got to squeeze the orange so tight that you get all the juice out of the orange. <laughs> Cause when you go back, you're probably not going to be able to be productive. Yeah, but you know, even do like if I take my podcast hat on and I put my executive hat on running this company, you know, we have a lot of people that work here. And what I always tell them was like, you know, I always want to create an atmosphere where you can be the most productive and happiest. And I want to, you know, if you leave, I want you to leave better than when you came, all that. Yeah. But what I also tell people is like, I cannot be the person that's going to help you, like that is going to make you happy. Like if you're, if you're somebody in your career and you're constantly looking for the next thing because you can't be happy, 
like there's some work that needs to be done within yourself. It's not just going to like the next thing is not going to be the thing that triggers it or the next thing or the next thing. It has yeah. to come from within. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what I also love about what you're saying is like, look, you know, I talk to a lot of company leaders right now and well-being is obviously a big topic. Yep. I think the, the, the shift though, is that in the past, this idea of well-being was like a benefit. You know, we want to give people more vacation time. We want to give people some room in their schedule. We want to sort of compartmentalize meetings so that they have time for wellness, right? But it almost in some ways felt like we're doing this as a benefit to you. Where I think the, like the most enlightened company leaders are coming around is to say, actually, it's not just a benefit for you. It's actually a benefit for me, for the company as well, of course. right? Of course. Because you are showing up in, in, a, in a much, in a much better frame of mind, Makes right? Makes sense. It's contagious. You, you show up with better energy. It affects everybody around you, even through a digital screen, right? And that is, I think, a really promising, I think, shift because now if it's not just about an employee benefit, but if it's about the bottom line of the company, that's where I think the well-being sort of revolution really takes off. Yeah, I mean, like not that I can tell anybody in the business how to conduct their life, but what I try to do with this show in my own life is like, I would be tickled to death if everybody in the business said, you know what, I got to develop a really strong wellness routine, fitness routine, all these things, that's reading routine, whatever it is, so that they can, when they show up here, they're just on point, right? Like, yeah. if somebody came in this business was like, hey, I'm sorry, I'm a little late. I was just working my ass off in the gym and like getting really prepared and read this great thing. I, I would be super pumped as an employer yeah. because that person's going to come with more energy. They're going to be healthier. They're going to be more focused, you know, all of these things. I don't think a policy of like, hey, take more vacation is going to solve anything for anybody, yeah. right? That's, I mean, we have all that, but it's, you, you also have to do the work to set yourself up to be a happy, productive, healthy human being. Yeah, yeah. The every day. Yes, the every day. What is the next essential practice? <laughs> this one I'm going to butcher. Upeka. Upeka. Yeah. Uh, this one, and I, I love this one, and we talk about it a lot, comfort in discomfort. So, yes. Yeah, comfort in discomfort. There's this great uh, Buddhist parable. I love it. I tell my kids it. Sometimes they, they're like, well, what are you talking about? But uh, maybe one day it'll make sense, which is that it's, the, it's called the tale of the prickly porcupine. And so there's, this, this, these, prickly, there's these porcupines that uh, decide to huddle together for warmth because it's cold outside. And um, what they realize is that when they're close together, they're needling one another, right? They're, they're pricking one another, right? And it's uncomfortable, and so they disband and they go out into the cold, but they realize that they can't survive out in the cold. They have to be together. So eventually these porcupines come back together to the den to help keep each other warm and they find ways to deal with the discomfort of them needling one another. And it's such a, it's such a metaphor, I think, for life, which is like, look, no one makes it alone. We don't make it anywhere without other people. But the fact is that we're going to be in interactions that are annoying for us. We're going to irritate one another. We're going to make each other uncomfortable. And even if it's not other people, it's other things and situations. We can either hide from the pain or we can find ways to have comfort in the discomfort, just the same way that the porcupines did. And so this chapter is really about what are, what are those ways. And, you know, for each of these chapters, I really, really tried to say, all right, I know that anything that is sort of, you know, Eastern wisdom is going to find an echo in the halls of Western science. It almost always does. Yeah, and what's it, an example it, of that? Yeah, so in this case, it's Viktor Frankl, right? It's, oh, it's, Victor, it's, it's man's search for meaning. And, you know, Frankl, as a neurologist, as a Holocaust survivor, you know, and as somebody who went really deep on the research around meaning, 
you know, one of his big punchlines was that in between something that irritates us and the way that we respond to that thing is a space. And inside that space lies our freedom, right? And so if something irritates you and your reaction to it is like this, right? It's just, it's, they're very close together. You don't really have freedom. But what we can start to do is we can start to elongate that space over time. Oh my God. Next time you get irritated by me, I'm going to say, <laughs> oh, you don't have any space. Yeah. This is such a good one. You don't have any freedom. This is literally such a great manipulation tactic. Thank you for that. What I love about it, what I love about it is like, it, it's like, it doesn't shame the anger that we have inside of us, right? Because anger is a, it is a, it is a natural emotion, right? Thich Nhat Hanh, Vietnamese monk he would like really surprise his audiences when he would get up in front of them and he would say, I, I have a lot of anger inside of me. And they'd be like, well, what do you mean you have anger inside of you? You're, 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 you're a Nobel Peace Prize nominated Tibetan monk, like Vietnamese monk. Like, how are you, how do you have anger? And he said, no, no, I, I do. And, and we all do. But the, the goal isn't to remove our anger or try to like rip it out of us. The goal is to, to lengthen sort of the wick Right? So if we have explosives inside of us, it's to lengthen the wick from the moment that it's lit to the moment it goes off because inside that space is where we can actually start to have some choices about the way we respond to it. And so this chapter is literally about what are some of those little choices, little things we can do to elongate the wick. One of the simplest ones for, for me is to just have a home base, what I call a home base, right? And this can be a mental image or it could be a physical gesture, something that you do when you're in these moments of, of discomfort. Like my 11-year-old, you know, we, we lived in, you know, she spent half her life in Metro Detroit. And we moved back to a neighborhood very close to where I grew up. And again, pretty all-white, you know, neighborhood. She got bullied a lot. She had brown skin. She got bullied a lot. And, and you know, she would ask me, like, what do I, what do, I do? And it's, it's like this it's really heartbreaking moment for, like, a parent to, like, have to coach, like, a child about, like, what to do with bullying. And, and I didn't have all the answers, for sure. But one of the things that I told her was that when I was getting bullied, when I was trying to figure this out myself, I, I just had this, I just had this physical gesture, which is putting my hand over my heart, right? Just like this, just learning to do this. And just that simple thing, you know, even if you're not getting love from around you, you can find little ways to give yourself love in those moments, right? And so for me, it's this physical gesture. It's this home base. For other people, it can be mental, right? Like a lot of people that I coach now have like a place that they go to inside their head. It could be, you know, a place they really enjoyed as a child, or it could be the, their, their, their favorite vacation spot, or it could even just be like petting their dog, right? It, but it's this mental image that they sort of bring to mind in, the, in these really uncomfortable moments. And again, it doesn't make that moment go away. That's not the goal. The goal isn't escapism, but the goal is starting to create a little bit more of that distance, right? Just a little bit more of that wick so that you can start to give yourself options because when you give yourself options, you give yourself freedom. Yeah. When I think the myth is believing that one day everything's going to be comfortable or that yeah. comfort is something to aspire to, right? I mean, you all like people, I think a lot of people get excited about going through this process in life of work and then one day being able to retire and have absolute certainty and have everything figured out. And I think in many cases, people find, you know, a lot of unhappiness at the, when they get to that place, right? Yeah. I think what I try to tell people that I'm working with or siblings is it, it's okay to be uncomfortable consistently 
And to realize that that's just part of life. And to your point, to find comfort in those moments, knowing that that's what helps you grow. Yeah. Next practice. (laughs) Leela? Yeah. I play. Yeah. So Leela is, Leela is my favorite. And it's my favorite in part because I think it's the toughest for me to to really kind of bring into my life. But Leela means high play. And basically the idea behind Leela is separating you know, and starting to now blur the lines between work and play, right? Because work and play, we're conditioned to keep them so separate from one another. You know, when you are working, you are expected to behave and act in a certain way. And when you're playing, you behave and act in a, in a completely different way, right? But what was interesting about, again, finding sort of echoes of Eastern wisdom in Western science, this chapter takes us into the research of Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi who authored Flow and did so much work around that. And ultimately, you know, his punchline was like, we all have two sides of our personality. We have an exotelic side and we have an autotelic side. The exotelic side of us is really, like, really obsessed with the goal, right? We're the goal, the deadline, right? And we wake up and that's kind of what drives us. And the autotelic side is much more about the process, right? And ultimately, you know, we are not one or the other. We're, We're both, but we tend to lean one way or the other. And I think that there was an assumption for a long period of time before Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi's research that the, the highest performers were people who were exotelic in nature. They were the people who were goal-driven. They were deadline-driven. What he was starting to find is that there were top performers everywhere that were also autotelic. They were as, they were as into the process as they were about the goal or the deadline, right? And not only did they sort of, were they into the process, they actually enjoyed the process. And when they were able to find some joy in that, some everyday joy in what they were doing, right, independent of the result, that's when the best performers were emerging. And, you know, it's like, it's like Alex Lowe, the, 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 the mountain climber. Somebody asked him, hey, you're in these life and death situations up there. What is it that separates the best mountain climbers? And he said, it's pretty simple. The best mountain climbers are the ones who are having the most fun. Right. And, and so you, you see this across all these different industries as well, is that there's this blurring of the line between, between work and play. And so, you know, for me, it's been just as simple. I mean, there's the, the chapter is full of these sort of different practices and how we can blur the line. But for me, I, I really think the simplest practice is before you walk into a moment, especially one that might feel intense, right, or feel serious or feel high stakes, just simply asking yourself, how do I have fun with this? I do this all the time because I actually have a tendency to like get like serious and gritty like in these moments. And sometimes like I just have to say, how do I, how do I have fun with this moment? And almost in, like inevitably when I do that, I loosen up. And when I can loosen up, I end up getting, you know, the best out of myself. It makes a ton of sense. Seva, forget yourself to find yourself. So Seba is all. Seba, see, I yeah, that, that's all right. So I butcher, oh, wow. I butcher Michael Levy's as well. Pr- pronounced one word wrong. I've pronounced every word wrong. <laughs> Here comes a negative review. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you did it with such a great voice. I know, God. <laughs> when am I going to get this voice back? My hair has never been thicker, which is saying a lot because after I gave birth both times, I experienced a lot of shedding. But now I have upgraded every aspect of my hair care routine. One of the things that I've been doing is eating a ton of meat. I also have been doing microneedling on my scalp and scalp massage. And then I've also been doing this passively multitasking bun situation. 
So what I do is I use a really nice product. Lately, I've been using Ultimate Repair Miracle Hair Rescue. It's by Wella Professionals, and it's filled with AHA and omega-9, which rebuilds the hair bonds. So I'll take that, and after I get out of the shower with wet hair, I'll massage it through my hair, and then I'll brush it into a sleek bun. So my hair is getting all the goodness. (laughs) which is amazing. I'm sure you've heard of Wella Professionals. They have 140 years of experience and everything is basically developed to just give you the best hair ever. The Miracle Hair Rescue Repair works in 90 seconds, so you'll be able to see it very quickly. It's a leave-in spray treatment. It comes in a travel size. I usually use that one. I just put it in my bag and it's made to be used on wet hair. I do like five to 10 pumps in my hair when it's wet and it just works. It's magic. You don't have to rinse it out. Really easy. Let me know what you think. This is also awesome if you're traveling or on vacation and you just want to give your hair a break. You can purchase Ultimate Repair Miracle Hair Rescue at Amazon and Ulta now. That's Ultimate Repair Miracle Hair Rescue at Amazon and Ulta now. I am a woman of convenience. I like things to be as convenient and streamlined as possible. I'm an efficient person. (laughs) I know you know this after listening to the podcast. I do not like to give away my time for free. And if I'm going to drink some alcohol, (laughs) I want it to be convenient. Let me introduce you to Drizzly. Drizzly is the most convenient way to get beer, wine, and spirits delivered to your doorstep right when you want it. You guys, this is the go-to app for drink delivery. So say you're at home on like a Friday night and you're really craving a specific tequila, Drizzly has got you covered. So while you're squeezing the limes and pulling out your maple syrup, you can have Drizzly deliver your favorite best premium tequila straight to your door. They have like a tailored experience that lets you find the perfect drink for whatever occasion. So maybe it's like a housewarming party or a wedding, or maybe you're just having a drink on a Friday. Drizzly has you covered. They also save you money by comparing prices on drinks across multiple stores. Another fun way to use this, I used it the other day, is I needed a last minute gift. It was this sparkling rose from France, and I went to Drizzly and they totally hooked it up for this last minute occasion. So you can schedule it ahead, ship, and deliver gifts on demand, which is great. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com and use code SKINNY. You receive $5 off or zero delivery fee on your next order. Must be 21 plus, not valid in all states. Codes cannot be combined with any other offers. Not valid at all retailers. Code expires 11-3-23 at 11.59 p.m. EST. As you know, I am all about my morning water. Every single morning, I like to really kick it up a notch. I'll add all kinds of things to my water and then always have my two probiotics. And the probiotics that I use, all my friends use, my family uses, a bunch of you use is Just Thrive. Just Thrive has been in my life for years and years. I took it while I was pregnant and I think it is the best probiotic on the market. It is one of the only ones that survives the trip to the gut, which we love, and they're very serious about ingredients. According to research, 99.9% of the probiotics on the market 
die in your naturally harsh stomach acid before they get to where they need to go, but not just thrive. And a marketing tactic that a lot of these probiotic companies do is they say to refrigerate them. Just Thrive does not have to be refrigerated. And some of the refrigerated ones, guys, don't survive to your gut, which sucks. So if you're looking to deal with gut issues, gas, bloating, diarrhea, constipation, indigestion, heartburn, acid reflux, you got to get on a probiotic. This one is the one. They have all kinds of products on their site, but I am a huge fan of the probiotic. And I also like Just Calm, which is a psychobiotic. They work in tandem. And Just Calm is all about lowering stress. So if you have low energy or you're irritable, Just Calm is designed for that. And we had a microbiologist on our podcast to talk about how a probiotic and a psychobiotic work in tandem to support your gut. So if you're looking to support your wellness routine, especially in the morning, you've got to get on this probiotic. You can get 20% off a 90-day bottle of Just Thrive Probiotic and Just Calm at JustThriveHealth.com. You can use promo code SKINNY90. That's SKINNY90 at JustThriveHealth.com. So Seva, Seva, we really opened up this chapter with Mahatma Gandhi. And most of the people in this book are actually from the West. You know, Bob Marley, Jimi Hendrix, Martin Luther King. Like, but, you know, Gandhi, in a lot of ways, was sort of an embodiment of Dharma, right? And the book that he carried around with him was the Bhagavad Gita. And the Bhagavad Gita was one of the first texts that really talked about Dharma. And, you know, when I talk about Gandhi to my students, like, I always sort of get like this eye roll in the room because he's like this holier, like holier than thou sort of figure. You know, he's, 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 he's somebody who I think people look at as like naturally, like he was naturally kind of like he did things right from the beginning and he was right from the beginning, right? But the reality is that Gandhi actually, like he struggled a lot. Like he was very shy. He was very timid. He started out his career as an attorney and he was so, he was so scared of public speaking that he actually, during his first court case, like sweat through his clothes. He ended up running out of the room, right? He never came back, abandoned his client right there and then, and was never able to get work as an attorney after that. And it's part of the reason that he actually left India and went to Africa to start, you know, trying to find work. And, and that part of Gandhi's story is not really told. And the reason that it was important for something like Dharma is because the way that he transformed himself from this person who was shy and timid really into somebody who was able to lead large crowds, like hundreds of thousands, millions of people eventually, was through this act of seva, which is that he stopped trying to find himself through himself, but he lost himself in the service of others. Right? Through service, he was able to figure out who he really was. And one of the techniques inside this chapter that I think that, you know, we can all use is what I call the spotlight switch, which is pretty simple. When you are walking into a big moment, like whether it be, you know, a meeting or whether it be a presentation or be a podcast interview, whatever it is, it often is tempting to feel like the spotlight is on you. And when you feel like the spotlight is on you, the pressure increases, the stakes feel higher, right? You can feel nervous because again, you're sort of caught in your own head, right? And you're making it about yourself. The spotlight switch is literally in my mind. What I will do is I will make like a click, click noise, like a click, click. And I will imagine the spotlight shifting to my, from myself to them, right? Like in this case, it's on you. It's on the two of you, Michael and Lauren, and it's also on the, anybody who's listening right now. Like the spotlight is on them. It's not on me. And for me, 
I actually, you know, I get scared. I get scared if I'm in front of an audience. I get scared when I'm doing something like this. I start to feel the butterflies in my stomach. This for me is the easiest way to just like relax because I no longer feel like the spotlight is truly on me. It's on you. This is what Gandhi used, right? And as it turns out, a lot of high performers will use this spotlight switch to not only, I think, give themselves some freedom and some, some, some ability to be light in situations, but to find better results. You know, another example is Brian Cranston. He, we talk about him in this book. And Brian Cranston talked about how for a long time he was going from callback to callback and he was not, he was not getting the part, right? And it was really frustrating for him. And he talks about how he shifted from this idea of getting, right, getting the part to giving, right? This shift from get to give. And when he was able to shift from get to give, things started happening for him. So instead of walking into you know, a moment and saying, I want to get the part, he'd say, I'm going to just give them a great performance. I'm going to give them a unique take on something. That's when people started to gravitate towards him. It makes so much sense because it, it, it's getting outside yourself. And it's, it's almost, in a way, selfish of us to be like, I'm, I'm so nervous. I'm sweating through my clothes. I, I don't know if I can do this. And like you said, taking the spotlight off yourself and putting it on other people. Yeah, I've never yeah. heard it described that way. But, and I've talked about it on the show, like my biggest fear going into this before we started this was public speaking. Like I really? did not want to. Yeah, I would not have expected that. No, no. And I did not want to do oh, it. And now I we can't sweat. shut them up. <laughs> yeah, now you can't shut me up. But like going on stage, same thing, you get the butterflies. And I still get that yeah. a little. But yeah. now what I do is I think about the audience and what they're there for and what they're going to get. And, and then I also think about like if I was in the audience, how I'm really like you're not nobody sits in an audience is like judging every aspect of the person speaking. You're just there to to hear a performance or yeah. to hear what a keynote. And I, I thought like, as soon as I started thinking about it from their perspective and what they were getting, it completely takes it away from me. It's like it's really not even about me anymore. Yeah. And yeah. it enabled me to obviously never shut up now. Um, <laughs> but no, but it was, it was that thing where it was, I was always thinking about myself in the act first yeah. and it disabled me from being able to do those things. And now, yeah, it was a good, it was a very good explanation. I think being in your own head is the quickest path to burnout too. You know, when we're in our own head, like we just so much more prone to like getting exhausted, right? Cause we make it about ourselves. I'll, I'll give like another, and maybe this might sound a little controversial, but if you work in an organization, and you're constantly thinking about what's my path, what's my raise, what's yeah. my title change, what's my growth, as opposed to thinking like, how am I contributing to the organization? What can I give to my department? What can I, you know, give back to the customers? Whatever it is, like those are the people that typically rise yeah. the fastest. It's the ones that have a focus on self that typically struggle the most. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, I, I think that that the, the this chapter is all about the many many examples of that. Or even you know when I'm say I'm signing a new podcast here at Dear Media, but the first question is, how can I make money? How can I do this? I'm like, that's not the right question. The question is like, how can you serve an audience? How can you get people interested in what you're saying? How can you bring guests on? Like, if you do that, the other stuff to your point earlier will kind of take care of itself. Yeah. The money, the growth, all of that. But if the focus is like right from the beginning, like what do you get? Yeah. I think those are the people that struggle the most, at least in this medium to, to kind of grow. For sure, for sure. And the thing about sort of service is that it, it is an everyday sort of thing. You can start to feel that every day, right? But accomplish is, accomplishment is not, right? Like if, if, if accomplishment is what is driving you, and again, there's nothing wrong with achievement or accomplishment, but if that's the thing that's fueling you, the feedback loop on that is pretty small, right? I mean, or, it's, yeah. or it's actually, it's a pretty infrequent, I should say. Like if, 
You know, so day in, day out, you're not going to be feeling this fuel that you're sort of looking for. But on the other hand, if it is service, that's something you can feel at every moment, right? Sure. No, I mean, like having you on, the hope is that there's a bunch of people that are going to have a takeaway that they're going to be able to apply to their own life to better whatever station in life they're at or whatever they're doing in life. It's not like, huh, I'm going to get this download and an advertiser is going to come knock on the door, right? Like if I, if that was my, mm. that would be a very difficult feed loop, feedback loop to grow in, right? Like right. if I was just like, I hope some advertiser hears this because some they got so many downloads and they come buy something on the show. It's like, no, it's like you have to provide a service to people and then the rest of the stuff kind of just happens yeah. organically. I love that. Too Lauren's like, let's move on to the next. Yeah. I want to know what the next one is. Uh, letting go and taking charge. That one's so, a good one. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, for me, this is really East meets West, you know, because when I was in Temple or when I would be in India, like there was this, there was always this point of view of letting go. Right. Like letting go is a big part of Hinduism. It's a big part of sort of my culture and tradition. But as soon as like the temple doors would swing open and I go back into like Western society, it was all about taking charge. Right. Huh. And and so I would I would constantly find myself sort of waffling back between these two worlds of, you know, this is who I am and, and but this is where I am. What I began to realize over time is that, you know, letting go and taking charge aren't they don't have to actually be so different. Right? They can actually sort of come together in a really interesting way. It's this idea of force and trust, right? So how do we apply sort of enough force in our lives, but not too much, right? And also the same term, trust. And, you know, so for me, I'll come back to public speaking and our, and our fear of it. You know, to get over my fear of public speaking, I would over-prepare, like I would, I would sort of, I would, I would be all force, right? I would, I would like, I would rehearse and rehearse and rehearse. I would often take my lines with me up on stage. Oftentimes that meant I was standing behind a podium instead of coming out from behind the podium. But I was forcing as much as I possibly could into a good performance. And the, the reality is it was never a good performance, right? Because I was rigid, I was tight. What I started to do is I started to figure out like, how much can I let go of just a little bit at a time? And what ultimately helped me here was what you might know as the 85% rule. And the 85% rule came out of Carl Lewis in the sprinting world. And there was a sprint coach who studied Carl Lewis because Carl Lewis was very unusual. He would start out at the back of the pack and he would almost always finish at the front of the pack. And that was very unusual because usually when people would start at the back of the pack, they would almost never catch up to the front of the pack in sprinting. So like, what is going on with Carl Lewis? And this coach took it upon himself to study him. And what he found is that Carl Lewis was almost always running at 85% capacity. He was starting at 85%. He would continue at 85% and he would finish at 85%. He was just an 85% sort of guy, huh. right? The entire time. So it wasn't like he was 0%. It wasn't like he was effortless, but there was this, there was this looseness about him. And what would happen with other sprinters along the way is a lot of them would tighten up, they would get rigid, and he would sort of whoosh back by them one by one. And he became this, you know, amazingly gifted Olympic like icon. Is it because they would start at like 100%? They start at 100% and they would lose and steam. They, they would it. lose steam over time. And I, th I think the 85% rule has been shared across all these different industries and people now as like top performers are sort of starting to embrace this idea of like, do I have to be so rigid, right? Do I have to be so tight and forceful in order to really get things done? And again, the answer isn't, no, you should completely let go of everything. It's more kind of like, 
let's find that balance between force and trust, right? The mudra in, in Hinduism is like, looks like this, right? And I've, I've now started to realize that that's effectively what it is. it is. It is force and trust. You've got these two fingers here that are kind of pushing against each other. That's the force. Then you have the other, the other three fingers that are sort of loose, right? That's the trust, right? And this to me has sort of been my kind of everyday sort of symbol of like coming back to you, okay, I think I'm forcing this one a little bit too much, right? The immediate practice, right? What's something we can, we can do is like literally before a moment, any moment, like whether it be with your kids, whether it be with your, whether it be with your, your coworkers, ask yourself like, how much force do I actually need in this situation? Like how much effort do I actually need to like bring to the situation? you're spending your right? energy. You're spending your energy as well. And oftentimes the answer for me is I need to bring like 70%, right? I need the force for like 70%, right? But if I feel like I'm like in this mode of like 90%, like I feel like I'm like, like really amped up, I will go do push-ups. Oh, I will go do jump. I will go do jumping jacks. I will go do something get it, to, to get it. that energy from oh. that 90% effort level to 70% because I just don't need it, right? And when I can bring myself to that sort of like level that is actually needed in the situation, it's not just like relaxing for me, but it's relaxing for everybody else around you. Like no one likes the person who comes into a room and is like at 100%, right? Like when, when the, the situation doesn't call for that, the situation calls for something much more mellow. People get defensive almost. It's yeah. Like it's subconsciously, it's a body language thing. It's yeah. not disarming. I, that makes sense to go do push-ups to like work off the energy oh so you God. don't come in hot. Sometimes yeah. I come in a little hot in the morning. <laughs> oh my might God, to, maybe you need to go do push-ups. Might push have to do some push-ups in the That's morning. That's a good idea. That you do do push-ups in the morning. I, I should. I, I mean, I do push-ups, but I should. <laughs> I'm a morning person. She's maybe not. And so I come in a little hot sometimes. Yeah. I'm a morning person, but like I... You are not I, a morning person. <laughs> Like, not even close. I'm a person who likes mornings. I just like need to like get my space she and needs my bearings. Like your own mornings. I need my bearings. She before. needs a warm up period. Yeah, yeah. I can't sure. like like he he's like sometimes when I'm in the gym working out, he'll come up behind me and whisper something in my ear about work. <laughs> I'm like I gotta sip my coffee Boundaries. and like work out. Like give me some space. He'll like whisper something I have to do in my ear. <laughs> Don't forget we have to do this. I'm like, get oh No, I grew, I grew up in a household. I joke about this all the time. That was like, there was, there was not like, there was no warm up in my household when I was growing up. It was like, lights on, go, out of bed, get moving. Yeah. Like, and that's just my, yeah, that was, I have to work on it now. Oh. I, I grew up in the same household, Michael. Yeah. yeah there's no like, there's no like, hey, let me pet your head and like warm, cuddly <laughs> wake up in the morning. It was like, get up and get out, you know? Did we go through all eight? No, we got one more. We Cre have one more. Kriya. Hey, yeah. Because I have another question after that. Okay. Last okay. one. Action leads to courage. Yeah. So action leads to courage. This is Kriya. We can't live our dharma by sitting on a meditation cushion, right? And and people. Uh oh. People. Yeah. Well, I mean, that that was one of the things that like, you know, the reason that this practice of dharma is literally, you know, centuries, thousands of years old. It it is because. Way back in the day, there was sort of a divide in South Asia. And this divide was of people who really wanted to sort of just spend their time contemplating and right? spending time doing yoga and meditation. You had other people in this golden era of South Asia where they wanted to spend time building and creating. And it was almost like if this divide was you had to choose one side or the other, right? But there were a lot of people in the forests who were contemplating and meditating who said, you know, what? I, I kind of miss the world of creation. I kind of miss the world of building. How do I how do I do what I'm doing right now? But I do it through that 
right? As opposed to needing to escape it. And that's really where Dharma came from. It was, it was, a, it was a method of action. Like Dharma does not exist without action, right? It is, it is purpose in action. And so one of the things that holds us back though, I think from action is like, I think three words, which is I'm not ready, right? I'm not, I'm not ready to... Or I'll be ready when. Right, or I'll be ready when, right? And so like, I'm not ready to speak my mind. I'm not ready to step into that role. I'm not ready to run with that idea. And, you know, what this chapter really talks about is all of the people who we think were sort of naturally courageous, right? They, they naturally had enough courage that actually were scared, like had a lot of doubt, right? And Dr. Martin Luther King is, is one, of the, one of the sort of the central examples of somebody we see as, you know, in front of a podium commanding like hundreds of thousands of people with their attention, but ultimately the people who were closest to him would describe him as very, very scared. He was, he was full of doubt and he had a lot of uncertainty. And I think when we, can, when we can sort of connect with the truth around the fact that people who are scared can actually do great things, that empowers us to do the same. It empowers us, I think, to not have to wait for courage in order to take action, but to take action and let courage catch up along the way. I think a big part of that is people are worried about what other people think. Or they're worried about public failure. Yeah. Or, or what, what their perceive. family will think or what their friends will think or what the world will think if you're dealing with social media. I was listening yeah. to this guy and I can't remember who it was just like a clip I saw and he was talking about how high performers get ahead in life so much faster than other people. And it's not like, oh, someone's so smart or has all these things. He was, he said a lot of times they're much faster at making the decision to take multiple actions quicker than most people. So mm. if say there's five or four decisions you need to make in a month, a lot of high performers will make the decision to take the action right away where some people are like, oh, I'll take a week to make that decision or two weeks. So I'm going to wait to the end of the month to make the decision. And they don't take the action and mm. follow through on the seventy. So the people that get far ahead, they make the decision and they go. Yeah. Regardless of, is it going to work out or not? You know, they yeah. kind of figure it out along the way. And one of the things that, that I think is helpful is, you know, in the book, what I call two-way doors, right? And two-way doors came out of, came out of actually Jeff Bezos, a shareholder letter that he wrote about the fact that like, we can sometimes mistake decisions as one-way doors when they're actually two-way doors, right? And if it's, a one, if it's truly a one-way door, meaning you, when you walk through it, you take that action, you actually can't walk back, then by all means, like deliberate on it, figure it out, muster up enough courage before you do it. But if it's a two-way door and you can walk back through if it's wrong, then don't spend that much time on that. If it's something that's calling to you, calling your heart, then just go do it. And ultimately, it was two-way doors that sort of freed me to run for public office. I moved back from, you know, I was living in Silicon Valley, I was working in tech. I wasn't happy with what was happening in, you know, sort of the, the political landscape, and especially back in my hometown in Michigan. And I moved back in 2000, after 2016, and, and got really involved and ultimately decided to run for office. And, you know, it was it was an unlikely sort of journey, and you know, my my I had a wife, I had two kids, we were pretty stable where we were in, in San Francisco, and it took a lot to convince them to come with me and do this. But one of the things that ultimately got us over the the hump is is this: it ultimately was a two way door, right? I mean, if I went out there and if I ran and I failed, as public a failure as that is, I can still like come back through right? I can still come back to the other side. It's not like I'm locked out there somewhere in some world that I don't understand and can never make sense of. 
I can come back. And, and I think that, that that ultimately is what freed me. And, and you know, it was a public failure. And, and it was one of those things where, like, when I lost, my neighbors knew. And I would drop my kids off at school. And, like, the teachers knew. And, yeah, but, but you learn a lot, too. You learn a lot from those experiences. And, and I think that, you know. It makes you tougher. It, it does make you tougher. It gives you grit. I think it really it totally gives you grit. And then I think it sort of comes back to that Sufi saying that we we started with, which is like, the world will break your heart and break your heart and break your heart. But eventually, the heart does crack open. And when that heart cracks open, it frees you to start living and loving the way that you actually really want to. And so, yeah, I lost my election. But like losing that and realizing that like the world wasn't over is kind of what freed me to start taking more risks, right? Like, I always wanted to write. It was something that I always wanted to do. But I always felt like, well, who the hell is going to care about your books? You know, there's so many books out there. I just, you know, after after running for office and losing, I'm like, all right, well, that wasn't so bad. So if I start writing books and nobody cares, and that won't be so bad either. Yeah, I think, like, as you're talking, I was trying to think of more examples of one-way doors. But I, I would assume, actually, people think that the majority of these doors you describe are one-way doors, but I would assume the majority are actually two-way uh-huh. doors. Everything, almost everything is a two-way door. Like, I mean, they're, they're, they're certainly like, I think like to me, like one-way doors is like saying something very harmful to somebody. Like words are very hard to take sure. back, you know? But the vast majority of things out there, our decisions are two-way doors. Yeah, I was like, I was talking to somebody who was contemplating leaving a stable job and starting their own thing. And what I was saying, I was like, listen, you can always go back to the stable thing later, maybe at a different company or a different organization. But like, you already, if you have that skill set, you can go back and figure out, like, you know, to go, get back to that place where you are right now. But like, you never know what's going to happen if you go and try that other thing. Worst case is you just go back to where you are, right? And it was like this, like, moment where they were looking like, oh, like they, I was like, it's not that hard to come back to where you are. It's hard. Yeah. It's it's harder to make the leap. It's hard to make the leap, and and certainly, obviously, like it's harder when. 20 years have passed by and you sort of look back on that and you say, oh man, I wish I would have done that. I wish yes. I would have tried that. You know, I think like, you know, two things come out of it no matter what. Number one is you never, you, you don't, you don't die wondering, right? But the second thing is like, it, it comes with growth no matter what. Like you win, you lose, you win, you lose, but no matter what happens, you grow. 100%. If you were to leave our audience with one piece of advice out of everything you've learned through writing this book, what would that be? Oh, wow. My grandfather, my Bauji, left me with this one metaphor that I will, I will carry with my heart for the rest of my life, and I will hopefully pass this down to my kids, which is that he believed that the, the, the world was like a massive sitar, right? Uh, sitar is like the string, the Indian string instrument, right? And he said that, that it's every one of us represents a string in that sitar. So you, Lauren, are one string. Michael, you're one string. I'm one string. And we're all one string. And no one string is more important than the other string. We're all one string. Your job in life is really to figure out how to play your string. Right? And the, the beauty of that isn't that just that when you play your string, it plays, it plays wonderfully. It's that when you can play your string, you start to harmonize the other strings as well when we live our dharma as as a journey like it's not just about us when you can start to come into your own when you can start to express who you are through what you do it affects the people around you as well like there's nothing there's nothing more inspiring than 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 seeing somebody and meeting somebody who is tapped into who they are 
and they're expressing that on an everyday basis because it gives you permission to do the same. So that would be the one thing is tune into your string, learn how to play it well. That is such a good piece of advice. I think it's so cool that you went from suppressing your culture, the baby powder, to literally leaning into it and embracing it. That must feel really good. It sounds like you're living your dharma. Thank you for coming on. Where can everyone find you, your book, Everyday Dharma, Eight Essential Practices for Finding Success and Joy in Everything You Do? Tell us where to find you. Yeah, just go. You can go to sunilgupta.com. It's S-U-N-E-E-L. I spell it with two E's. G-U-P-T-A.com. And, and there'll be some stuff out there, and including a, a way to get the book. I love it. And what's your Instagram? Oh, at Sunil Gupta. Thank you. I Thank you for coming part. on. Thank you. Don't forget to shop The Skinny Confidential on Amazon Prime Day. Just head over to Amazon on October 10th and 11th and search The Skinny Confidential. 